What is Crackalackin, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Brommel. I am, however, super excited to be cannonballing into another solo mailbag, so we'll get to that momentarily. First, though, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you're getting your podcasts. Um, those help us a ton. Rating subscriptions, juice up our standings in the charts. Also, subscribe, help us with our downloads. If you've done all those things, please consider retweeting our promos, telling friends, family members, acquaintances, random people on the internet who like basketball about this podcast and how much fun we have around these parts. Follow us on the socials, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Handles are in our podcast description. Join our Discord, the link to which is in the podcast description as well, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com. Search Hardware Knox. We will come up. Those housekeeping notes are out of the way, and I am hell-bent on making this episode under an hour, as I promise you every single time I do a solo mailbag. So let's get right into them. First question, and we'll start with this one, comes from the NHL Chicken. Uh, asks, is it time for Duncan Robinson in the Heat Sixer series? Outside of Game 3, Miami has not shot better than 26% from 3. The lack of consistent spacing at times seems to be stalling possessions and turning them into ISO fest. What's their path to winning this now? Best of 3 series. Also, what's up with Lowry? Uh, so, so we'll start with Lowry, and some of you may be listening to this after uh, Game 5. He is still dealing with that hamstring issue. He came out and he said that he probably even shouldn't be playing on it, but it's the playoffs. I believe it's his left hamstring, unless I'm mistaken. He is, as of right now, questionable for Game 5. And so that is absolutely huge for Miami because he's an important part of what they do. He's not had the most efficient season for himself overall, but he's great connective tissue on the offensive end. And he's brought defensive toughness. Um, also, like he just fits their defensive ethos is basically what is basically how I would frame it there. Even if this is not, and it has not been his best defensive season, should they play Duncan Robinson? I would expect them to try. I think what the issue here is, and look, just per Lowry struggles three of seventeen uh, in this series, including Ovate from three. The Heat are a minus eleven in his minutes. I don't if he doesn't play or if he's playing this poorly. Uh, I would expect them probably to go to Duncan Robinson at least a little bit. Uh, the natural cr- progression there would be Gabe Vincent. Uh, the starting lineup with Gabe Vincent, the one you know Max Drew starting for the Heat right now, instead of Lowry, is a plus 16 in 33 minutes during this series. So that's something that certainly uh, you can consider. And I get what you want out of Duncan Robinson, uh, just his gravity, as the cliche word goes. Even if he's not hitting his threes, like his off-ball movement or the, the idea of Duncan Robinson is going to change the way defense defends you. I can only assume the Heat are concerned about him being targeted on defense. And you look at Philadelphia, there are going to be stretches where they have Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid, and James Harden. Um, if they force a switch, and we know Miami likes to switch, uh, all of those guys can attack a Duncan Robinson. And you already have to deal with having uh, a, a hobbled Kyle Lowry, for one, but also minutes in which he, Tyler Hero's on the court. Philly has gone after him quite a bit. If you're going to have better games, too, from you know a James Harden, where in game four, he's actually beating the heat on switches that include Bam Adebayo guarding him, uh, that could put you in a precarious situation. And that would be the resistance to playing Duncan Robinson. I think you could and should naturally stagger his minutes from Tyler Hero to ensure that both of them aren't on the court at the same time ever, or at least for long stretches. Gets a little harder. Both of them are going to be coming off the bench, but still... I think you have to go to it because we've talked about it on this podcast before. People have talked about it in general. Miami's half-court offense has been like, I, I don't want to call it a weakness, but a sore point. Uh, they have an above, a, a, excuse me, a below average half-court offensive rating when Lowry, Butler, and Bam Adebayo are on the court together. That was during the regular season. So we're talking about a larger sample size. Not a huge one just because they had a lot of absences, injuries, you know, COVID-related stuff like baked into the entire roster's availability this season. You look at it though, and it's you know Butler. He's he shoots more threes in the playoffs, shoots them better in the playoffs. But that's someone who's not known as the most efficient jump shooter. He wants to get to the rim. He wants to draw fouls. He wants to set up the, his teammates. Bam Adebayo has some range, but he's not jacking off the dribble three pointers. And if Kyle Lowry isn't Kyle Lowry, uh, you do start to run into just some issues in the half court where it looks like things are stagnant. And it doesn't even like some of your better shooters. Like if it's a if, if you trust P.J. Tucker to knock down corner threes, like that's fine. Teams are going to live with P.J. Tucker shooting threes. He's never really taken them with the absurd volume anyway. P.J. Tucker's had a great season. I'm just saying the, Duncan Robinson is a threat unlike any other on this team. There's even more of like with the Victor Oladipo 
playing time. Yes, he's going to be better on defense than a Duncan Robinson. He might have higher end offensive moments too because he can self-create. That being said, even when his shot's falling, it's just a different type of outside shot than Duncan Robinson. That threat away from the ball is something that they can't really match elsewhere on this team. I'd expect him to at least try it a little bit more as the series goes on. I don't know if it'll be the actual difference, uh, but the Heat should you know, positively be concerned about this. And, uh, you know, and look, is Duncan Robinson even going to hit his threes, though? He has the eight of nine clip against Atlanta in the first round. He was two of 10 otherwise in the playoffs. He does need a chance to play. And again, even when he is not um, making his, his jumpers, making those really tough threes or those quick fire threes, it's still putting pressure on defense in certain ways, even if it's just by the actions of which are getting him open. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm with you, NHL chicken slash NBA chicken that I would absolutely try out Duncan Robinson in this series. I just don't know if he's going to be the difference, and I'd be curious to see what their defense ends up looking like. However, I think you could certainly argue, given how much Kyle Lowry has been hobbled, sort of the recent topsy-turviness of even a Victor Oladipo, is it just worth a shot here? And so we'll we'll just have to wait and see. But yes, I would expect it to become an, an actual thing. JT Alexander asks, where's the best landing spot for Zach Levine? in free agency and will he get a max my feeling is he will stay with the bulls but interested to see what happens with him this offseason yeah so uh the brian windhorse of the hoop collective i did not listen to that podcast yet but i did see the aggregation quote making the rounds of uh portland popping up as a potential zach levine destination i don't get it i don't like you you decided to move on from cj mccollum and norman powell so that you could pair damian lillard with anthony simons and zach levine uh, a younger, peppier pair of running mates, but like you have made your defense like laterally, like that's a lateral defense. And I just that would be that'd be very curious. Like, but it's a fit, but is it like a much better one than what just happened? I do not know. For to Zach Levine's contract, though, uh, as of right now, unless I have my max contracts wrong, the Bulls can give him five years and two hundred twelve point three million. Outside teams can give him four years, one fifty seven point four million. That's obviously a massive difference. With that being said, we know how this works. Players are getting to free agency sooner. They can recoup that money elsewhere. Levine is only 27, just turned it in in March. Uh, He could sign a four-year deal with uh, that fourth-year player option and then set himself up for one more longer-term deal when he would just be wrapping up his... I think that would have been his age... wouldn't even be his age 30 season by that point if it's after three years, right? So he could go that route. I personally expect him to re-sign with the Bulls. That is just a lot of money. He has had some injury stuff throughout his career as well. And Chicago has every incentive to give him the, the max. So they can't you know, play cute in this scenario. They have no leverage here. They made the consolidation trade for Nikola Vucevic. Um, they went out and they signed a trade for DeMar DeRozan. You, you can talk, yeah, okay, if you're going to begin a transitional era, you you can have Alex Cruz, Alonzo Ball. It doesn't really change the complexion of, of those deals. Uh, some people have wondered whether they held on to Patrick Williams past the trade deadline or didn't go all in yet again because they weren't sure how the Zach Levine free agency would play out. Perhaps that factors into the equation. If he leaves, it's because he doesn't want to be in, in Chicago anymore, though, because if you're the Bulls, you have to max him out. Like, There's no if, ends, or buts here. Uh, maybe you don't think he'd be the best player in a title tender. It doesn't matter. Put yourself in a position where you need to offer him the max. For, for laughs and giggles, though, if we were talking about where Zach Levine should go and I'm throwing, I'm just throwing market out of the equation. So anyone who is like rooting for the Lakers to come in with picks and Westbrook and a sign and trade one, the hard cap is a thing. And that just gets like almost impossibly workable in that scenario. But I'm just looking at teams, basketball, that would be quality basketball fits here. Uh, so Portland comes up. I'm just listing them because of what when said, I've also seen, um, some people maybe entertain the idea of Atlanta. What's interesting about the Hawks is that I feel like people are too worried about the minutes Atlanta spends without Trey Young or getting him moving without the ball. I understand how important that can be. Uh, but one, they did cobble together lineups with uh, Bogdanovich this year that did not have Trey Young that were effective, that were net pluses, and that survived on offense. And then I just don't know. Like, what does your defense look like if you have Zach Levine and Trey Young? Okay, great. You have Trey Young, get him moving off the ball in the postseason. Is that like what you want to funnel um, another max slot towards with Trey Young's extension kicking in? Um, you also have to go the route of a sign and trade with Chicago. I do think you have players, picks, prospects, just looking at DeAndre Hunter, 
Um, you have the salary matching fodder if it's a John Collins. Uh, you have Gallinari's partially guaranteed salary for next year if you really want to go that route as well. So there, there are mechanisms through which you can build the sign and trade. I just don't know if this is the player to consolidate into for a team like Atlanta. And that also just brings up the larger issue for Atlanta. What does a consolidation trade look like? What should that player be? We got into that a little bit with Keith Smith from Spotrack on the last podcast. So go check that out. I really like San Antonio in large part because DeJounte Murray had the, the guts, the gall to go on Twitter and post a Photoshop picture of Zach Levine in a Spurs jersey. He did delete it. But look, I, I think you could probably make a case that San Antonio needs defensive clarity more than offensive clarity right now. But they don't have an off-the-dribble shot maker like Zach Levine, let alone one who can just toggle between off-ball and on-ball responsibilities like he does, like he has, like he can. I would love to see him there. Um, man, and just the way the Spurs have played, like where they haven't been afraid to downsize, so there's a little bit more like positionless stuff going on there under head coach Greg Popovich. You know, he might, you know, Pop might have like mini coronaries with some of Zach Levine's shot selections, but he makes tough jumpers and he's someone who is going to pull defenses away when he doesn't have the ball. Put him beside DeJounte Murray in the backcourt, surround him with Devin Vassell, having Jakob Pertl, uh, on the back line, like you, your defense, we've already seen Chicago when they were at full strength, their defense was pretty good with Zach Levine on the court for, for long stretches. Uh, you can play a hyper-aggressive style with some of that personnel too. Uh, maybe things get a little bit iffy depending on how you feel about Keldon Johnson then, but there are just so many different lineups that you could build out here. And he's just young enough to where it fits the motif of what San Antonio is almost doing right now, where they're building, but they're not fully rebuilding. Uh, they are one of the teams, one of the, we should say, one of the very few teams that has a boatload of cap space this summer. It is not quite to Levine's max. I think they can pretty effortly, effortlessly get to like 29 plus million to make up the difference there, though, when, when you're talking about Zach Levine's max on the open market is going to be 30.5 million. Uh, that's, or should be 36, boy, I was off there, 36.6 million. Excuse me, I was looking at the wrong column. Uh, you have to probably get into the conversation of, okay, if you have the foresight, you can just waive Zach Collins's deal. And I believe that would just about get you there, but then you have to look, you also would have to look at, okay, renouncing Lonnie Walker. That's already part of this. Uh, do we look, can we find a taker for Romeo Langford? Uh, and so you get into moves like that. They could do it if they want to, or maybe there's just another sign and trade to be had between uh, Chicago and San Antonio. The other team, I, the other two teams actually I really like for Zach Levine. This one's kind of a no-brainer. Dallas would have to be another sign and trade as well. What gets difficult with them too is that they are like you would be hard capped, and to stay under the apron for them is not a non-challenge as of right now. And this is without them having any major off-season decisions to make. It's it's assuming that the guarantee Max and Kleba salary, which duh, Trey Burke picks up his player option. Uh, you know, maybe they don't bring back Frankie Lokina, like, but right now they they are very close to the apron for next season. I think they're within like just a few million bucks, and so that doesn't give you a lot of uh, wiggle room when you are brokering a sign and trade because you have to stay under under that luxury tax apron, which next season I believe is set at one fifty five point seven million dollars, roughly. That that changes if it goes lower, it makes it even harder. If it goes higher, uh, it makes it slightly easier for them. And again, there are some things they could do. But what, what are you offering here? It's just like, okay, the your first round pick in this year's draft, 26. Then you can't technically convey a future first round pick until 2025 since your 2023 first is owed to New York. Anyone listening to this podcast knows that they would be trading this year's pick after the fact that it happened. That's how you get around the, the step in rule there. But like, what else does, if you're trading Zach Levine or Chicago, do you want distant first round picks? Um, in 25, 27, like, let's say they're going full boat and they'll do 25, 27 and 29 or whatever, all the swaps in the world. Does that actually appeal to you? It might, if you're rebuilding, um, it probably won't. If you're trying to compete with DeMar and Nikola um, Vucevic there. And if Zach Levine does leave, I do wonder what that would spell for the bulls. That's a different conversation. Yes. Uh, Dallas has salary matching tools to make such a transaction work, but is Chicago really going to want Spencer Dimwitty? Are they really going to want Davis Bertans or, or Dwight Powell, Reggie Bullock? You would give up Maxi Cleveland a deal for Zach Levine, I'm sure, as much as it stings. Uh, there's just not even like, there's no one who's very headlining there. Uh, Dorian Finney Smith, I'm sure they would covet. That's probably, that'd be interesting. Is that a deal breaker for Dallas? I, it, Zach Levine is clearly the better player, but Dorian Finney Smith has been so important to what you've done 
defensively. And he's on what is going to end up being, I think, one of the better deals in the league. He signed that four-year, $56 million extension. Is there a Jalen Brunson double sign and trade to be had if you're getting rid of Zach Levine in Chicago? I guess that's something that they could look at. Um, finding a workable package, though, is tough. I love the idea of Zach Levine, though, in Dallas. Someone who gives them more of a traditional number two, uh, where you're not seeing Jalen Brunson hit all these off-the-dribble jumpers like he needs to get going downhill, and even with Spencer Dinwiddie a little bit. Zach Levine is someone who brings that element. I think also with him, you probably get Luca moving off the ball even more than we've seen. And I do think I would have to, I should really look at numbers to back this up since this has been my opinion on the eye test. I could just be wrong. It does feel like Dallas has done a better job than um, Atlanta with Trey Young and getting Luca off the ball a little bit more this season. Uh, Zach Levine sort of incentivized you to do that even more. And it's different from the Atlanta situation in the sense that Atlanta probably has the more attractive sign and trade package here. That being said, their defense is not good enough to br- just bring in Zach Levine, pair him with Trey Young, and say, like, okay, we'll be fine. Dallas was, I think, finished sixth or seventh per Cleveland Glass in points allowed per possession this season. And they just they have more quality defenders there. You're looking at Bullock, Kleba, uh, and then, of course, Dorian Finney-Smith. And the way that they were you know, defending on live balls, Jason Kidd having them get back in transition, I, I think you could be a little bit more comfortable adding a player of Zach Levine's caliber and thinking that, hey, we're closer or at the title contention ceiling. Whereas with Atlanta, I don't know that's what he does. My final team might be my favorite team is Memphis. He has to want to go to Memphis. I understand that. Memphis has to want him and spending big on outside talent wouldn't be their MO post Chandler Parsons era contract. That being said, just look at this team. Look at what they've done. The fight they put up against Golden State in game four without John Morant. There's an ugliness to their offense and that's fine. Uh, You want to hit the offensive glass. You want to get out and transition, um, and then you're going to lean on John Morant. Zach Levine gives you a half-court creator, unlike any other one that you have right now, including John Morant. I'm not saying he's necessarily better now or in the long term, but John Morant is not hitting these difficult off-the-dribble threes or, or fades. Like He's trying to get to the rim, hitting his floaters, uh, is getting better at punishing defenses when they're going under screens. Fantastic player. Zach Levine just gives you a different element of, of a half-court creator, and it takes a lot of stress off of a Desmond Bain or a Jaron Jackson Jr. on any given night. And those aren't aren't guys who I think are overtaxed to begin with, certainly not Triple J when John Moran's healthy, maybe Desmond Bain a little bit. Is there an effect where you have like the Maxi Kleba type, you know, scorching heater from Desmond Bain after Zach Levine comes in, where he was already great in the most improved conversation, but then uh, someone comes along who makes his job even easier, makes it tougher for defenses to key in on him, and he just absolutely goes kaboom. I don't think that Memphis would go this route. They could technically, they can technically carve out a boatload of cap space if they wish. Uh, it's not nearly as much as San Antonio, but it can be in the $20 million range. You have to renounce both Tyus Jones and Kyle Anderson to do that. It, that gets, you know, I don't think they're going to look to get rid of both of those guys. I'm sure they'll pinch pennies somewhere uh, and they'll be, you know, maybe ultra conservative in how they're spending. They're going to want to keep at least one of those guys. That's also too big of a difference to make up for Zach Levine's max. Like now you're getting into you know, double-digit salary dumps where it's getting rid of De'Anthony Melton and, and Dylan Brooks. It would have to be uh, or it would have to be via sign and trade. And look, they have some, they can offer interesting, they can offer an interesting package for that. They have first round picks to spare. Uh, they've Utah's this year plus their own. They have Golden State's top four for protected in 2024. Uh, you can build a lot of stuff, a, a lot of different packages with that. Looking at actual players they can include in that scenario, what I, I don't think you're the cutoff is Desmond Bain. And by that, I mean you're not giving up Desmond Bain, John Moran, or Jaron Jackson Jr. in any deal. Like that's just the that's just where you're at. Would, would I give up Zaire Williams, who I'm officially high on after not really knowing much about him leading into the draft and then thinking it was a whatever move by the Grizzlies? Very much like him. You give him up in a heartbeat for Zach Levine. Uh, if you're pairing him with picks and then salary filler, uh, you can't necessarily afford your Steven Adams money fits right into that equation, but you do have Dylan Brooks. Uh, maybe Chicago values that just bringing some defensive toughness. If they can sort of live through um, him thinking that he's the greatest offensive player alive on like, you know, eight to 35 possession offensive possessions per game. Um, they have DeAnthony Melton as well. And so you could step ladder your way to that contract. Uh, and then maybe if you have some space, use that to fall back on. The sign and trade number does get a little difficult because if you're not including Steven Adams, uh, as of right now, 
he is your highest paid player next season. Your second highest paid player is Dylan Brooks at 11.4 million. There's a chance that number, oh, excuse me, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s deal kicks in. Um, my sheets are not sorted. So he's your highest paid player. You're not getting rid of him. Steven Adams is second at 17.9. Then you have John Morant at 12.1. And then Dylan Brooks is 11.4. So the salaries get like not on the lower end, but lower middle end pretty quickly. And some of the best, in theory, money matchers, John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., you're not getting rid of those guys. Uh, and if you move Steven Adams, you are, I think we've seen that the Grizzlies can play without him, you are then tasked with trying to find another big and why would Chicago necessarily want him? They do have Vooch there. If they're not rebuilding post Zach Levine, if you can find a way to get to Memphis though, and if a player wanted to go there, um, you could probably include enough picks if you're Memphis to make it worth Chicago's while um, they have Brandon Clark as well. So there are interesting players there. If push came to shove and Chicago really wanted Desmond Bain. I think it's a discussion as of right now. I don't think because of, and it's not, that Zach Levine is not more valuable than Desmond Bain. Uh, maybe some would argue that on Zach Levine's next contract, he won't be more valuable than Desmond Bain. But is Zach Levine going to make you a surefire championship contender? There's the case to be made, but it's not on the same just level of, of a no-brainer. So I would explore it, but you're probably looking at a situation where the Grizzlies won't give up if they were even willing to do it. Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant, of course. Those are the obvious ones. And then or or Desmond Bain. That was a great question, though. Zach Levine's free agency or Bradley Beal's free agency is maybe the best chance we have at some star-level drama this summer. There's a very real chance Jalen Brunson is just the best free agent that realistically switches teams. Maybe Bradley Beal grows disenchanted with Washington or they decide to pivot elsewhere. Does Phoenix get super cheap under Robert Sarver when it comes to paying DeAndre Ayton what will inevitably be a max contract? I do not know. We'll have to see how free agency plays out, but it does feel like as of now, uh, unless they address this in the next CBA, that there might not be as much superstar movement in free agency, that this is all just going to continue to play out on, on the trade market. Next question comes from Anthony. Which team surprised flopped with their preseason predictions in terms of wins slash ranks for 2021? I know the Grizz did better than expected. So I went back and I did it this way. I looked at the win totals that we used uh, from WinBet to look at just the NBA projections. They were probably similar depending on the time of the year that we did that. And we did it very close to the regular season everywhere else. And so I looked at the, the biggest discrepancies um, from actual wins compared to projected wins. And I'm just highlighting all the teams that missed by double digits on either side of the spectrum. Um, and there was four, four teams that were at least 10 games worse than their projections than five teams that were at least 10 wins better their projections. Let's look at the teams that did worse. So the Brooklyn Nets, their win total was 55.5. They won 44, 11.5 difference. Indiana, uh, 17.5 win discrepancy in the wrong direction. They were projected to win 43. They won 25. Uh, the Blazers tied them there. The Blazers were projected to win 44.5 and they won 27. The Lakers were the worst team relative to win total expectations. There are 33 wins against a 52.5 win projection. That's a 19.5 difference, which is massive. In case you're wondering, I picked the over for them because I am a, I'm a sucker. I could not believe I picked that over. Uh, the best teams, uh, he mentioned, uh, Anthony mentioned the Memphis Grizzlies. They chicken at second as the, let's call them the second biggest overachiever. Their projection was 41.5. Uh, they won 56, 14.5 difference. <laughs> I took the under on them, of course, because I'm a fucking moron. Um, let's actually go in reverse order. The Minnesota Timberwolves, though, uh, a 10.5 win difference, 46 wins against a 35.5 projection. Then you had the Toronto Raptors. They won 48 against 36.5, so they won 11.5 games more than expected. 11-12 were just, again, I'm using the win total numbers here. Uh, Phoenix, this one is... You understand it because they clearly weren't projected to win um, 64 games, but 12.5, they were projected to win 51.5. They won 64. That's the third biggest um, win total discrepancy in the positive direction. That is just, this team had, I don't know what's going to happen in that series against the Mavericks at this point, but this team is, if Chris Paul doesn't foul out or commit a zillion turnovers in one half, they'll probably be fine. This team is just absolutely incredible to blow a 52 win projection just right out of the water, not even close. Uh, Memphis again checks in at second, 56 wins against a 41.5 projection. The number one team, I think you could probably guess it, is the Cleveland Cavaliers. 
They won 44 wins. They were projected to win 27.5. No surprises here. Adam and I both took the the under. Shout out to Justin Rowan, host of the Chase Down podcast. He took the over when we were recording the the look eds. So, um, and we'll have to get into where the teams that we missed on. I definitely missed on the Timberwolves. Uh, I had them as the under there. Kudos to Fro who had them as the over. I'm still mad that I I took the, I don't know what Kool Aid I was drinking I, that I picked the Lakers over. Still mad about that, but yeah. So the single biggest overachiever relative to win expectations was was Cleveland, and the single biggest underachiever was the the Lakers. So both a, a former LeBron team and a, and a current LeBron team. There's some poet, poetic irony there, or something, or maybe nothing. Shalimar the God asks, "What teams do you think are surprisingly likely to be in the playoffs next season?" This question was tough for me. Uh, just because I don't know that like you look at this, the landscape right now and the teams that are in the playoffs this season, you don't expect any of them to go anywhere. Look in the West, Phoenix, Memphis, Golden State, Dallas, Utah, Denver. Maybe you expect Utah to blow it up. I don't even know how to frame this because my first inclination would be to say this. I think people are going to look at the West, see that the Lakers, the Clippers missed the playoffs, uh, then maybe the Blazers are going to keep Dame and they're going to be fine. And, but they're going to see those and say, okay, well, Minnesota or New Orleans is going to end up being bounced from playoff contention, even if Utah decides to bow out willingly. Um, so I could easily pick one of those two teams. They're both capable of making the playoffs next year. As I mentioned on a podcast and caught a world of shit for, uh, I do think New Orleans has a chance to be better than Minnesota. I just think there's going to be a higher range of outcomes on their ceiling when you look at the player they're getting back in Zion Williamson, um, the fines that they have in Herb Jones and, and Jose Alvarado, and just the tools they have to improve the roster with their picks. Um, and they have some salary that could be moved. They could make a bigger trade. I think they're better positioned to do that than Minnesota is. That's just where that's just where I land on them. Wasn't an insult to the Timberwolves. That's just how I feel. Maybe I'm wrong, just like I was with Minnesota's win total over under. Uh, but does that count as a surprise when both those teams are in the playoffs this year? And then it's it's like a similar proposition in the East where Who's supposed to fall out of Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Toronto, <clears throat> Chicago, Brooklyn, and then Atlanta? Uh, all those teams should be chasing a playoff berth. This is probably a question better answered after free agency. But beforehand, if I'm going to pick a s- surprise team, I would just keep an eye on the Pacers. A lot of people probably believe that they're either going to full-on rebuild, which there, there are rumors that um, they're going to trade Malcolm Brogdon, which might support the idea they're rebuilding. They're going to add a top-seven prospect this year. They still have a lot of talent on this roster if you're going to hold on to Miles Turner. You have Tyrese Halliburton. Chris Duarte had a great rookie season. Do you bring back TJ Warren? There's a chance that they could be ultra competitive in the East. I also, I don't, like, it doesn't count as a surprise that the Knicks and the Wizards make the playoffs. It would be the same with the Hornets, even the Cavs at this point. I'm just wondering of, like, the the other two teams who were just so flagrantly not interested in winning for all of this season, Detroit and Orlando, just Detroit with Cade, if you really hit, like if the number, if you the top three pick that you're probably going to get or whatever comes in and he's really good and you use your cap space on a Jalen Brunson or maybe you get an Anthony Simons or someone else, like could, with a Kate Cunningham second year leap, is it outside the realm of possibility that they enter the, the discussion? That would be my, they and the Pierce would be like my ultra, ultra surprise teams. If I have to pick one from the West, I'll just say the Spurs. I think people are still of the mind that they're rebuilding. I know they made the play in, uh, but I, we have to see what happens with Pop still. They're just, they're not on track to be awesome, but they're just a good, solid team. And they have good, solid players, including a potential tentpole quarterstone in DeJounte Murray. If they use their cap space or if they pull off a trade, which they seem at least more open to to doing that type of business, they were a team that avoided trades you know, all the time. And now they've made them slightly more frequently. Um, they made two big ones in the same calendar year with uh, DeMar DeRozan. And uh, the sign to Chicago, and then they gave Derek White to, to Boston. Both of those were considered selling moves. So they have a buy in them. Like I said, is that was what if Zach Levine's there? Um, and that could this question could be best phrased of like, who would you expect to be surprisingly aggressive in the offseason to try and make the playoffs? I think the Spurs could totally fall under that equation. And it's just, it wouldn't surprise me if the Pistons tried to accelerate something. I don't know if that would be to their detriment, but. Uh, this is all to say, are there going to be any surprises next year? Yes, there are going to be a ton of surprises. The West looks like hellfire right now when you're saying, the, uh, people troll saying, oh, you can't count on the Clippers or the Nuggets to be healthy. They should be healthier. Uh, just relative to the number of games that key players miss, they should be healthier. So you have the Nuggets, the Clippers coming back at, let's say, at fuller strength. The Pelicans should be getting Zion back. 
the Minnesota Timberwolves, Dallas Mavericks, Golden State Warriors, Memphis Grizzlies, Memphis Grizzlies and Phoenix Suns aren't going anywhere. What if the Lakers don't suck? What if the Kings get better? We'll get to the Mike Brown coaching hire in just a minute. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different possibilities in the West where I feel like in the East, it's, you know, you'll probably talk yourself into like the same eight teams, maybe like Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Toronto would all be locks for me as of right now. I'll put Brooklyn in there as well. So there will be some like variants below that, but should we really expect Cleveland to go anywhere or, or Charlotte? If we're looking at teams there that would make like a, just a bonkers blockbuster move to try and um, accelerate their position in the conference, I would look at a Charlotte or even in Atlanta. Atlanta is at least set up to make a consolidation trade if a sensible one becomes available. And I could see Charlotte getting uh, you know drunk on Rudy Gobert's availability or going ultra nuclear somehow. Maybe they go after a Jeremy Grant and Miles Turner package, like split that difference rather than investing all their assets in a Rudy Gobert deal. Uh, that's something modern. We should let's circle back to that one as well after we go through the the free agency and offseason process a little bit more. Carrigan asks, if you're the Jazz, who would be your perfect fix as a third star alongside Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, both your dream player and your realistically gettable player? My dream player for them is it's a I mean this might be my dream player for every team, but it's a Jason Tatum type, Paul George type or Kawhi Leonard type, probably Kawhi Leonard, Jason Tatum type, just looking at what they would need on the defensive end. I think that's a no-brainer there. Now, who's gettable? Those guys are not. So let's make that clear. I think you're looking at, if you want to run this back and you're willing to give up trading distant future first-round picks, there's a chance that you can get into the Jeremy Grant sweepstakes. Sorry, excuse me. That's That helps you a ton. And I don't think it's... It shouldn't necessarily be off the table. They could be staring at the Western Conference and thinking it's going to be a long path back to rebuilding or how do we trade Rudy Gobert and still remain competitive. There's a chance that you just don't because of how good the Western Conference looks like it's going to be. I just... I don't... I I don't know if you considered Jeremy Grant a star. I do not. But that seems like the top out of who they can acquire without giving out Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert. There might be players who are better... I just don't know if they would be a better fit. Uh, John Collins, like if if Atlanta was for some reason interested in like a hodgepodge package you're offering, I don't see how that makes you, it makes you more diverse. He could play some five and maybe that's better in certain matchups. I don't know that I see it. Um, he's certainly dynamic on, on offense, has a little bit of a floor game at this point, is used to playing next to a primary screener, um, having run alongside Clint Capella for a couple of years now. I just wouldn't, cash in my future assets to do that when I don't think he Collins doesn't necessarily address any, anything of what's ailing you someone I've thought about and now go with me not a star and I, I don't I don't know what the offensive fit would look like but what if he's healthy and what if this team is pivoting in a different direction because they're about to there's a chance they draft another big they are they do have top three they are one of the teams with top three lottery odds the Orlando Magic and Jonathan Isaac what if that's just a relationship that is sort of deteriorating and he's a you know another really borderline transcendent defensive player that you could get without having to give up a Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell, which to be clear, I wouldn't even do that in a vacuum. I'm just saying you pair him with Rudy spacing gets weird. Maybe you trust Isaac to become a better standstill shooter at this point. He can play some five though in certain matchups. He is just an absolute monster on defense. There's a lot of risk caked in there because you do not know what he looks like after missing, you know, basically the past two years. Uh, like it'll be almost two years, I think, since he last played. He really, he almost played, he played January 1st, 2020. I think 21 was the last time he played, or 2020. It was like right there. It was dating back to a calendar year. Like he was a day off from us being able to say, oh, he didn't play. Uh, it was January 1st, 2020 is the last time he played. So we were, we're like so close to being, it'll be almost three years. So it's a bit more than two. Uh, we are so close to being able to say, that he hasn't played since 2019, but that's just certainly not the case. Anyway, that's just food for thought there. I don't feel free to get at me on Twitter, the DMs and Discord. And if, if you have like better suggestions, a higher end player that you think they could acquire, I just, and Boston would never, let's use Jalen Brown as an example. They're never going to make him available. You just, you don't have the asset firepower to get him, even if they do. You could go the Harrison Barnes route in Sacramento if they decide to hit reset there. Does that elevate your team enough? You want, I think like that combo forward or at least an, another just like defensive monster um, who can help you on the outside and simplify things for not even simplify things for Rico pair, but at least like not make his role as comprehensive to where he is your defense essentially. And, and even look, Jonathan Isaac even makes life easier on someone like a, um, a, a Royce O'Neal. Uh, Aaron Gordon would be a good fit for this team. If he, for some reason became available, maybe Denver gets all of a sudden tax shy 
with Nikola Jokic's Supermax coming up, and they have Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. now on big money deals, plus Aaron Gordon. Those, I just named a bunch of non-stars, though. And I just don't know that Houston without, uh, Houston, Utah without giving up one of their two core players that they're going to be able to get an actual star. I even thought about OG Ananobi from Toronto, and his role is kind of weird now because you have Scotty Barnes. There's no way you should get rid of Siakam. Uh, but like, is that something that, that Toronto would consider maybe in a Rudy Gobert, or Don Mitchell trade, but not for what else the jazz would be offering unless they're going to look at rebuilding. And even then it's like, OG Ananobi's had his injury problems, but he's still on the, the younger side. So that would be the type of player though. If you're not going to get the star, look at like the Jeremy Grant, the OG Ananobi types, like do those opportunities present themselves at all. Some might just argue that they think the Jazz need like to change it up with shot makers next to Donovan Mitchell. Maybe someone who forces him to play off the ball more, or usurps him in the pecking order. Uh, maybe someone with uh, you know better hands in in crunch time of the playoffs than Mike Conley right now. But I don't offense. I don't think is going to end up. I mean, the Jazz got beat every which way possible against the Mavericks. But I, I think their offense, you can at least feel mostly confident in that hierarchy. Uh, even if you're not happy with Donovan Mitchell's improvement as as a passer, or maybe the chemistry that he has with Rudy, uh, and maybe you're worried about Mike Conley's age and him being sort of the primary vessel through which Rudy Gobert is going to get the ball, especially now that Joe Ingles isn't there. That is that could be a focus, and it's certainly not unconcerning. But I still think that you need to shore up this defense more so uh, in front of Gobert, and so those players I all named would at least help do that. I don't know if any of them are perfect solutions. I don't even know if any of them would actually be available. We know Jeremy Grant is. I don't think Harrison Barnes is like this monstrous defensive upgrade. You certainly can get away with, it makes sense to play him in a playoff series rather than tying your hopes to uh, Rudy Gobert leading into this past season. It was just a shock that he didn't end up being that player and it wasn't someone he could turn to when it mattered. It was just shocking. Uh, it wasn't shocking, by the way. Lob ties asked, will Zion Williamson establish himself as the most dominant force in basketball when he returns to the court and plays a significant stretch? I I don't want to say no. I just don't, like, what do we mean by the most dominant force? I think Giannis is the most dominant force in the NBA right now. Is Zion Williamson going to be, like, a better version? Um, not a better version, but a better brand of dominance than that? I don't want to rule it out. I mean, look, last year, 61 appearances, 27 points, 3.7 assists, shot 62.2% on twos, 70% inside of three feet, just an absolute monster, 9.4 free throws per 36 minutes. And it felt like he probably could have or should have averaged at least like five to six more opportunities per game than that. So I, I, I almost like don't know what to expect, but for him to be truly dominant, there's got to be better defense there. There's a lot of off ball issues um, that, like arose last season, even during his first season, it felt like New Orleans was giving up a ton more corner three pointers when he was on the the court because of his rotations or uh, off ball decision making or lack thereof. Something to watch there. If he can improve on defense, um, I think some people will say he needs to have a jumper. I don't know if he's ever going to need to. Uh, like, yeah, I guess the volume that Giannis provides on the outside has value. Are we ever going to see Zion do more than take? You know, he took 34 three-pointers in his sophomore season, 0.6 per game. And it was about 0.6 per game as a rookie as well. I don't think he necessarily needs to jack up that volume. This is someone, though, who fully healthy. I think just the value he provides in offense. The strides he's even made as just a playmaker when they put the ball in his hands more last year. This is a player who has top 10 star in the league uh, potential right now. I'm not even saying that's his peak. I, his peak is best player in the NBA. That is Zion Williams' peak. Will that happen next season? I would bet no. Do I think Zion Williamson could be one of the 10 most valuable players next season? I think he could. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't rank him there to start. I need to actually see him play after this foot injury, after this long absence. But knowing what he did last year, what he's capable of, yes, he, could, he absolutely one day could be the best player in the league, and it would not, it would not floor me. It would be more of like a pleasantly, mildly surprising development if he was a top 10 player next season. Can't wait to see him in New Orleans and that team fully healthy. Though. I'm very excited for, for their offseason. EOC asks, should the Lakers extend Westbrook to a four-year max? I'm sure this was a joke, but I'm taking the opportunity to just talk about how Sam Amick came out with a report that um, within it, there was the, the from the athletic, within it was um, the sentiment that the Lakers thought Frank Vogel was responsible for the way Russell Westbrook played, that he didn't put Russ in a position to succeed 
heavy eye roll here. Jeannie Buss also just did an interview where she said she was disappointed in the results, given how much the Lakers spent into the luxury tax this past season. Oh my fucking God. The Lakers need to stop crying poverty. They're the Lakers. I can't anymore. It's just, it's just objectively ridiculous at this point. However, the Jeannie Buss comment should probably be concerning because the Lakers as of right now, and this is with having um, like very, I think more than half the roster is technically slated for free agency. If we assume that Russ picks up his player option, you keep LeBron, AD, Talon Horton, Tucker will be back. Kendrick Nunn is picking up his player option. You have to bring back Austin Reeves. I guess, do you pick up Stanley Johnson's team option? Let's just say yes, to bring us to eight players. So then with minimum roster charges there, you are still over the luxury tax apron, which means that are the Lakers going to use their mini MLE uh, around $6.4 million this year? Or are they just going to try and fill that out with minimum contracts and, and hope that they hit on some of them? You should be, you don't have any key free agents to the point that you're worried about losing them. Malik Monk is a big one. That's what's tough about the Lakers is they don't have his bird rights. The most they can offer him is the taxpayer's mid-level exception. So if you use that to keep him, then you certainly need to hit on your minimums like, whoa. Meanwhile, though, you have the Lakers concerned about dipping into the luxury tax as this flagship market franchise that has one of the like biggest sporting brands of all time um, in their name. And then also just in a player like LeBron James. Do not feel bad for them. Should they extend Russell Westbrook? That's funny. Do I think Russell Westbrook could be back next season? It would not shock me. It would not shock me. I don't know that there are deals out there where you're not going to have to give up draft equity to get rid of him. And if you're the Lakers, I do think there's some there's some validity behind him. Well, we don't want to give up picks if we're not going to get back actual players we could use. You're always going to get back players. But if it's just, why are you giving up a first-round pick to go from Russell Westbrook to John Wall? Even if John Wall's healthy, he might be like a 10 to 15% better fit alongside LeBron and AD than Russ was. I don't know why people all of a sudden think that he's just going to be so much of a, a cleaner fit. Like I, I just, I have not understood that logic at all. Um, if you don't want to make the all in play with the picks though, and there are deals out there to where you could turn Russ into players while giving up those picks, that's on the Lakers. You're obligated to win. Now you have LeBron, you have AD, like there's no just waiting on this. Uh, you fucked up with the Russ trade uh, and it, keeping him really isn't an option, but you can't, you can't trade him away without at least, I don't even want to say noticeably improving your roster. This can't be solely in addition by subtraction situation is what I'm getting at. There needs to be a way to sort of break up his contract into a you know two, preferably three to four rotation players, um, or at least one to, higher, one to two higher end options. Uh, do you have the draft equity to do that? You cannot convey a first round pick until 2027. So, so maybe not. You can include swaps in 26 and 28. But there's not a lot of front offices that are going to still have their jobs as of right now in 2000 and, uh, by the 2027 draft, which is something to consider. If, if I had to peg like a percentage that Russ would still be in LA next year, I'm going to put, I'm just going to say like 30% because the Lakers feel too cheap to waive him and uh, waive and stretch him. Like that doesn't seem like something they'll do. Or maybe they're, maybe they're so cheap that they would do that just to break it up into smaller payment increments. But then you're just looking at, so much dead money on the books for the next uh, three years. Just, just for everyone to know, if you wave and stretch Russell Westbrook, it's a $15.7 million cap it per year for the next three seasons. You could just wave him outright, go the full addition by subtraction route, but then you just have this $47.1 million dead spot that you cannot trade. Uh, and then you're, you're really uh, screwed there. I, my guess would be Russ is not with Lakers next season, but it's certainly on the table. The Lakers almost seem like they're bracing fans for it. And I look, if you're a Lakers fan, it's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. If that happens, that should, that should absolutely be a mentality that you maintain. You are not going to make the Russell Westbrook experiment work by changing up the head coaches. Daniel Tice fan club asks, is there a stat that shows Daniel Tice's seals productivity effectiveness? If there is Daniel Tice fan club, I don't have it. Um, I did appreciate the, the nuance behind this question though. And, uh, basketball nerds will know that Daniel Tice is, you know, well known for his seals. Like, is this a, do we call for a seal assist now? Like we have screen assists. When you look at how many layups looks at the rim, he's kind of created away from the ball with his seals. Cause you can't even look at sort of his post volume because he's not sealing to get the ball. He's sealing to create space for everybody else. 
Now, this would be a stat that could support that, though. The Celtics took 6.3% more of their shots at the rim with him on the court. Is that this season after the trade? Is that a direct result of, of his seals? I don't know. I'd probably argue. I'd, I'd argue no, but it certainly could be um, a driving force. And he, they did change up their roster overall with that midseason trade. There are other factors that lead into that, but that's a pretty like huge um, jump, even for even for a partial season sample. And look, it's not solely out of character. If you look back to his time in Chicago, uh, they took 2.3% more of their looks at the rim. Um, in his time in Boston, in all seasons, but his first one, more of a larger share of their looks came at the rim with, with him on the court. And so maybe there is just something to the value of his, his seals there. Um, the, and I would hazard, look, if we're talking a full season sample here, if you just compare that 6.3 jump, there are 15 players, uh, who were on the court and had their teams, uh, rim share frequency increase by 6.3 percentage points or more on the season. And so that's where Daniel Tice would be. Let's just give all the credit to his, his seals though. I appreciate that question. Finally here, didn't get a question about this, but did want to talk a little bit about the Sacramento Kings hiring Mike Brown. The three finalists for that job, per reports, appeared to be Mark Jackson and Steve Clifford. Uh, they did interview a wide range of candidates, uh, I believe, they, or at least talked to or, or were linked to. We saw Darvin Ham's name in there, and the Milwaukee Bucks assistant, Kenny Atkinson from Golden State. I do think, as many people pointed out, that going with Mike Brown is a nod to how the Kings wanted experience. Um, Greg Wissinger posted a great piece over at the Kings Herald. You should go read it about you know, you could be relieved about the results that you didn't get Mark Jackson, but you should still be worried about the process. Mark Jackson was apparently Vivek Ranadive's choice pick while Monty McNair wanted Mike Brown. The fact that Monty McNair got his guy, I do think is encouraging because it does show that he has the final say on these basketball matters. Probably also puts him on the hot seat a little bit. I do think Mike Brown's name will be one that incites means from people. This is not the same guy who was coaching um, the Cavaliers the, the second time around like that. This is someone who has spent more than a half decade now with with the Golden State Warriors. Uh, he is known for for his defensive development. Maybe that does help the Kings a bunch there. I personally would have liked to have seen them gone. It doesn't. Even, it's not even the outside the box route. Hiring Kenny Atkinson not outside the box. Darvin Ham going with the first timer maybe a little bit outside the box, but he's just one of the the leading up and coming coaching candidates. Uh, I would have preferred what that innovation showed for them. We have to let this play out on the court. What I will say is you can't expect Mike Brown to be the difference between the 12th best team in the West uh, missing the playoffs and making it next year in a conference that is going to be probably healthier and therefore deeper. The Kings have to make changes this, this off season. And when you, and I'm talking like real meaningful changes. And when you look at what they've done uh, with the Mike Brown hire, and I, we knew this with the Sabonis trade, they're clearly not going to look to strip it down and, and start anew. So now they're tasked with getting better from the 12th best record with no cap space. They are, they're comfortably beneath the apron, but their best spending tool is going to be the non-taxpayers mid-level exception, $10.3 million. I don't know what type of player that gets you in this free agency market. Um, the non-taxpayer mid-level exception is going to be very valuable in a market without cap space. There also aren't a ton of great free agents. And I'm not even trolling here. You are also the Kings. If the money is equal, how many players are going to, Sacramento over, you know, who's another team that's going to have the full non tax Like, would you prefer Sacramento or Charlotte? Would you prefer Sacramento or Toronto? Would you prefer Sacramento or I think Miami? So, I mean, that's easy. I think Miami has the ability to get to the, the non-tax payers mid level unless I'm missing something. Yeah. I have a lot of ap apron room here. I feel like that might be a typo. Uh, would you rather go to Sacramento or Minnesota? Uh, Sacramento still in California. That helps Sacramento or New Orleans. I just, they're going to be at a disadvantage there. I don't know what else they do to this roster. Is this, are they going to be putting their picks on the table to try and get someone else? Who is that someone else? Who becomes available? S some have mentioned them as a dark horse Regal Bear destination. I'd almost want to give up Sabonis in that trade because I hate the fit between Sabonis. And you thought Turner and Sabonis were an iffy fit on offense. Gobert and Sabonis are, are even worse. Uh, I don't know what else is out there. Could you go the Jeremy Grant route without giving up Harrison Barnes? Yeah, that, that helps you. A little bit, I'm sure. They've they've got to make monster upgrades, though. And I would say at least one monster upgrade. It doesn't have to be a consolidation trade, but they need to make a move or two where you look at 
and you go, wow, damn. Like that was such a smart move by the Kings. This dude, these dudes are going to make such an impact. And you do need, if you want to be a better defensive team, you need better defenders. Um, Harrison Barnes, probably a net neutral, net plus defender overall. Justin Holiday is fine, although I didn't think he was great when he got traded to Sacramento. Are you even bringing back Dante DiVincenzo? He has not looked the same since he came back from injury. Um, so aside from Davion Mitchell, like there's no just uh, like really players who project as like strong and, and high end defenders. Even if you like what Rashawn Holmes does, uh, even if you like what Harrison Barnes does, it, they're just not on the level of defensive game changers. And someone like Rashawn Holmes needs to be in trade talks for them uh, after they they acquired Sabonis. I, I hate that fit as well. They need wings is their their biggest need and. I, they can't be I, personally. They can't be afraid to trade anybody. If I'm running the Kings, I think at this point though, you have to look at this and say, okay, Sabonis and Fox, and then everyone else needs to be on the table. Um, are you willing to move Fox if it means drastically improving your defense? I don't even know what that looks like. If if Brooklyn all of a sudden just said wants to revisit the talks for Ben Simmons, I think the Kings were less likely to make that trade now. Especially, I mean, Sabonis makes it worse, arguably, but they weren't. Didn't seem like they were willing to give up Fox in the in the first place for for Ben Simmons. Uh, but yeah, the Mike Brown decision, fine. I I skew if I'm a Kings fan towards saying God, it's not Mark Jackson. But you also have to hold teams to higher standards than that. Was this coaching search uh, extensive enough, or as Greg sort of alluded to, which I like, authentic enough to where were they just trying to check boxes among the fan base and and for the media leaks by looking at some different options when it when it seemed like they were always sort of lasering in on these these three people or just finding an experienced head coach. We'll have to wait and see there, but Mike Brown hiring Mike Brown is the, like the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. The, the Kings have like 87 million steps they need to follow from here. And they're a team that needs to make at least one big trade over the off season. If they want to even sniff the playoff conversation, that is the team. Timberwolves fans can come after me. If I, if I were Grizzlies fans, I'd be more angry with me than the Timberwolves fans are for what I said at the preseason. I didn't disparage them. I just picked their under. That was fucking stupid. Uh, this is a team that I would still be with if they didn't make any wholesale moves, if it's just futzing and fiddling, maybe you trade Rashawn Holmes for for a wing or just to, to break up his contract into a, maybe another backup big and then like someone else who could, who could shoot, whatever. Failing a big move, if this team makes the playoffs, I will be flabbergasted. So I'll say that right now. Thank you all for sticking with me. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to one, the only, Frank Nielakina.